Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Have you ever been to a beautiful city somewhere where there are cafes and shops and businesses built along narrow streets, and you learn that the foundations of the streets were laid thousands of years ago? They've been inhabited continuously with people living their lives and tearing down old structures and building up new ones over and over and over again upon that same grid, those same streets, generation after generation. Have you ever wondered who decided on this street layout? When? Why? Somebody made it up at some point. Is this city grid still serving the needs of the people who are building their lives on these streets now? Today, we will be discussing a book that examines the foundations of patriarchy, the cultural, psychological, and political system upon which humans have been building their societies and their religions and their personal lives for thousands of years. The book is called The Creation of Patriarchy, and it's by Gerda Lerner. Written in 1986, it answers the questions of who, when, how, and why— of these foundations. But before we start, I want to introduce my guest, Sherry Crawford. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Amy. Sherry and I met in Cairo, Egypt, when we were both college students on a semester abroad in Jerusalem. We were in a writing group together in Jerusalem, and then later ended up reconnecting after college as young moms and forming a joy school together with our kids. We've been friends all this time, even though we've sadly lived far apart. And Sherry, I am so grateful to have you on board this project, and I'm super excited to have you here today. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, I really am so happy to be here. Um, let's start out with um, an introduction. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and just some things that make you who you are? Okay, sounds good. I'm Sherry Crawford. I'm the fifth of six children born into a low socioeconomic status Mormon family. I was born in Utah. I grew up in Arizona. And while my grandparents had plenty of money and they provided nice Christmases and trips to Disneyland for us, I think of my growing up years as being everyday poor. Um, education was not encouraged in my family. Some of my family members didn't finish high school and I didn't have any college aspirations for myself. I accidentally went to college because my seminary teacher, Brother Burkhart, he signed me up for LDS Business College and I went. <laughs> um, later, I had been at LDS Business College about a year when my friend Tammy told me about the BY Jerusalem Study Abroad Program. I signed up, not knowing if I was going to go. Uh, the cost was $8,000, which felt like a million to me. My grandma and grandpa helped a little. My parents helped a little. I received a scholarship, but I sold my Bronco and earned most of that money myself. After Jerusalem, I went to BYU Provo, and then I did the next Mormon thing, which was to get married and make babies. <laughs> <laughs> I um, put my studies on hold so that my husband could finish his degree. We had our first baby right away. My husband stayed in school for 13 years until he eventually earned a PhD in nuclear engineering from the University of Utah. He got a job in Idaho Falls, Idaho, where we live today. Um, about my kids, we had four while we were in school. And when my youngest was in kindergarten, 
I knew I needed to change something about my life. Being at home full-time without children wasn't satisfying for me. I searched deep inside and decided to finish my education. I had never planned to finish school and only envisioned being a stay-at-home mom for my life. This decision led to a full-blown panic attack. I didn't know what it was at the time. I thought I was having a heart attack and took myself to the doctor's office where I learned that my heart was just fine. So I went back to school. Um, I attended BYU-Idaho. I went to almost all of the Mormon schools. (laughs) Some of my highlights include studying U.S. women's history with Dr. Andrea Radke Moss and religion with Dr. Janice Johnson. With Dr. Johnson, I was able to explore the notion of the divine feminine and incorporate more of Heavenly Mother into my spiritual practice. Mormons have a belief in a Heavenly Mother but we're not allowed to talk about her and we're definitely not allowed to talk to her. So studying the divine feminine was really powerful for me. I graduated from BYU-Idaho in 2017 with a degree in social work and then went on to get a master's degree in social work from Boise State University. I am the first person in my family of origin to earn a graduate degree. I Woohoo! I know it was a big deal. It really it is. And my family it is a big deal. They celebrated me too. They were they're all quite proud of me. Mm-hmm. I remember Sherry. I have to throw in. I remember seeing on Facebook when you graduated, and you were holding a sign that said "I did it," and your kids and your husband were all holding signs that said "I helped, I helped, yeah. I helped," and. I I cried when I saw that. I was so moved and so proud of you. So Thank you. Thank you. It yeah. was a big deal. <laughs> it was. I was able to put in a few years as a psychotherapist before taking my current job as an elementary school counselor. And it is hard work that I absolutely love. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are the best. So there's one more thing that's significant to who I am. Um, I grew up my whole life thinking that my mom's side of the family was Mexican. My mom's native language was Spanish. My grandma Lucero always used to say very proudly, we are Spanish people. (laughs) It was so cute the way she used to say it. Anyway, um, a couple of years ago, my brother did a 23andMe test, which revealed my mom's side is mostly Native American. Hmm. We believe the Pueblo tribe in New Mexico. Around the same time I learned this, I happened to be studying the Spanish conquest of the Americas in my U.S. Women's History class. And I learned in the readings that the Spanish enslaved the Pueblo people of New Mexico. And while reading this, I realized that that is about my own family. And it was devastating. Um. I've been learning more about my family history. Oh, sorry. I get so emotional. I'm sorry, Sherry. I've like known about slavery my whole life, but then finding out that it was in my own family is anyway. Oh, I'm really excited that later in the podcast project, we're going to read about native American women together. And that will be really meaningful to me. Oh, Sherry. Thanks. Thank you for, thank you for sharing all of that. I just, that I can't imagine how hard that would be um, to discover that pain of, of your ancestors. And I'm, 
I'm grateful that you shared that. And yeah, I feel really honored and humbled, honestly, when we read that book later in the in the podcast project. I um, I feel humbled to be able to walk with you as you kind of learn about something that is really important and personal to you. So, thank you. Um, it is so sacred. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you in advance for that. And thank you in advance for um, the conversation that we're going to have now um, about the book that is our topic today. Um, so the, the other thing that's really neat um, to have you be my reading partner for this book is we're going to be talking about, you know, the cradle of civilization. And you and I met in the Near East and went to some of... Um, humanity's oldest dwellings together. I remember being at, they're, they're called tells, like the big archaeological digs. And um, so it's kind of fun to geographically go there with you again. <laughs> um, we didn't go to Iraq or anything, but we were in um, Israel and Egypt looking at um, some really old stuff together when we were young. And so this is really uh, meaningful to do this with you again, Sherry. So um, before we dive into the book, though, um, I just want to take a minute and learn a little bit of background about the author of our text, Gerda Lerner. So, Sherry, if you could just um, tell us a little bit about the author, that would be great. Okay. Gerda Hedwig Kronstein was born to a wealthy Jewish family in Vienna, 1920. At age 10, she was enrolled in a demanding all-girls school where she loved listening to jazz and reading modernist literature. In 1934, a virtual civil war broke out in Vienna between Nazis and leftist workers, and some of the fighting was so close to her home that she could hear the machine gun fire. Many Jewish men were starting to be arrested, so Gerda's father left the family for safety, intending to send for them later. In his absence, the Nazi stormtroopers arrested Gerda and her mother instead seeking to use them as bait to force her father to return. Gerda and her mother were imprisoned separately and held in prison for six weeks. And Gerda believed she survived only because some communist cellmates shared their food with her. She looked back on these experiences as a Nazi resistor and imprisoned teenager as the most formative influences of her life. She arrived in America in 1939 she soon met Carl Lerner, a communist theater director, fell in love, and in 1941 married him. They moved to Los Angeles, where he became a successful film editor, and she began writing. In 1943, she became a citizen. Having mastered the English language with astonishing speed, she collaborated with Carl on some screenplays, including Black Like Me, which he then directed. Their daughter, Stephanie, was born in 1946, their son, Dan, in 1947. She soon became a national leader in the Congress of American Women, working with poor Black women and beginning to understand the limitations of her own middle-class assumptions. I can identify with learning about my own privilege right about that same time. <laughs> I sure can as well. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing. Yep. Yeah. At age 38, Gerda enrolled in college and then graduate school at Columbia, earning both a bachelor's degree and a PhD in six years. <laughs> um, driven by her developing concern with race and women, 
and defying warnings and belittlement from those who argued for a more conventional and high-status topic, Goethe wrote a PhD dissertation about the white abolitionist Grimke sisters. Children of South Carolina slaveholders, they were the star anti-slavery activists of their era, as well as early women's rights advocates. And is it right that you'll be reading the Sarah, Grim- Sarah Grimke in a later podcast? Yes. Okay. We sure will. Yeah. One of her works we're going to spend a whole episode on. She is an absolute rock star, just an amazing, amazing author. So, yep, we will highlight her in just a few episodes. I'm excited to learn. <laughs> in her first job at Sarah Lawrence College, she quickly recognized that merely teaching women's history would not be enough to build respect for the field. And she strategized to build women's history programs with high visibility. Doing this often meant fighting major battles with administrators and faculty members in order to be taken seriously. She began teaching at Sarah Lawrence College in 1968 and worked to establish a master's program in women's history, which still continues. Twelve years later, she won a professorship at the University of Wisconsin over a significant opposition where she built the country's first PhD program in women's history. She lectured widely on the importance of women's history. And one of her most famous quotes is, quote, women's history is the primary tool for women's emancipation. Her master project of the 1980s was published in two volumes. The creation of patriarchy, uh, we're going over the first part today, and the creation of feminist consciousness. And we will have a whole episode on that book as well, Sherry. After our creation of patriarchy, we're going to read the creation of feminist consciousness as well. And it's fantastic too. Oh, exciting. I'll have to pick that up. Um, yeah, that's great. For Gerda to do this massive study, she left modern American history for anthropology, archaeology, mythology, and early modern Europe, and read widely in German as well as in English. She claimed that depriving women of education and knowledge of their own history was the root of their subordination. This is why she dedicated her life to women's history, so that it wouldn't be pigeonholed as a separate field left to specialists. She wanted a holistic history, and she wanted a history that served to advance understanding of all forms of injustice. Awesome, Sherry. Thank you. And I just want to add, too, that Gerda Lerner really has become a hero to me. I had never heard of her until I just happened upon this book, um, The Creation of Patriarchy, about a year and a half ago or two years ago. Um, It took a few months for me to read. I know we talked about it as you were reading it too. It's it's not that it's hard to understand. It's really clear writing, but it's just really thorough and really densely packed. Um, So it's not fast reading, but nearly every single page has something highlighted and I have pages dog-eared and like it's full of just notes in the margins. I I felt like my mind was constantly being blown and I would like read things over and over again just to internalize them. Um, I was just having historical epiphanies and personal epiphanies and I really felt like this was the book that I had been searching for for the past 10 years or more. <laughs> um, 
And then there's just so much about her life as you were talking about it too, that I related to, like you said, her kind of consciousness um, raising moment where she realized her own privilege and then how she went back to college in her thirties and then got her master's degree. I mean, I, I'm just blown away that she got her, she went all the way through her PhD within six years that I cannot relate to (laughs) at all. (laughs) um, (laughs) Not at all. And then she ended up founding women's studies programs. Really, it is that mission and that vision that inspired me to start this project because, Mm. you know, um, you just talked about how she didn't want women's studies to be pigeonholed and um, kind of, I feel like it's almost hidden, not on purpose, but like a lot of these books that we've put on our reading list for breaking down patriarchy, I just keep having this feeling of like, why have I never heard of this book? Why didn't I read these books in high school or college or even in my master's program? Um, and so learners, one of learners' missions really was to to bring women's studies into the mainstream. And um, I share that mission and that vision. And that's a big reason why we're here today recording this episode. So yeah, um, thank you. a really inspiring woman. So... Uh, Thanks, Sherry. And let's dive into the book. So like the book that we read on our last episode, Rianne Eisler's The Chalice and the Blade, she begins in the year 3 million BCE, but she goes into greater depth than Eisler does. So today we're going to cover the introduction of the book, some prehistoric events, as in developments that happened before there were any written records, and then we'll cover Mesopotamia and the era of the Near Eastern goddesses. Um, that will be today's episode, and then in the next episode, we'll cover patriarchy within Hebrew civilization and the ancient Greeks. So we'll start with the introduction. First, Sherry, can you tell us some of the parts that you thought were most important from the intro? Yes, I'm going to start with a quote from Goethe. Quote, women are and have been central, not marginal, to the making of society and to the building of civilization. Women have also shared with men in preserving collective memory. History making, on the other hand, is a historical creation which dates from the invention of writing in ancient Mesopotamia. From the time of the king lists of ancient Sumer on, Historians, whether priests, royal servants, clerks, clerics, or a professional class of university-trained intellectuals, have selected the events to be recorded and have interpreted them so as to give them meaning and significance. Until the most recent past, these historians have been men, and what they have recorded is what men have done and experienced and found significant. They have called this history and claimed universality for it. What women have done and experienced has been left unrecorded, neglected, and ignored in interpretation. Historical scholarship up to the most recent past has been women as marginal to the making of civilization and as unessential to those pursuits defined as having historical significance. Thus, the recorded and interpreted record of the past of the human race is only a partial record in that it omits the past of half of humankind and it is distorted and that it tells the story from the viewpoint of the male half of humanity only, end quote. 
Oof. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's going to be a theme for the whole podcast, right? Yes, it sure is. Yep. Almost all of the records we have of human history have been written from men's point of view. And it makes me wonder, what would history look like if women had been writing the records all of this time? And if women had been interpreting the historical records and creating the stories? Totally. That's like a really interesting thing to think about. Like our whole concept of ourselves and our history and what it means to be human, I think would be different if it had been women all along, right? Right, right. Um, That actually, that reminds me of another quote from the introduction where she says, um, quote, women have been kept from knowing their history and from interpreting history, either their own or that of men. Women have been systematically excluded from the enterprise of creating symbol systems, philosophies, science, and law. Women have not only been educationally deprived throughout historical time in every known society, they have been excluded from theory formation, end quote. So I guess that just emphasizes the the quote that you said. So it's not only like recording the names and dates of like, we think this is important for everybody to remember, but also interpreting what that meant. And then again, like kind of the mythology and the poetry and the science and philosophy about what it all means. That's also been completely um, unavailable to women and, and women have been completely unable to participate in that process of creating the symbol systems. So just so one-sided. <laughs> yeah. Always. Oh. It always yeah. has been until so, so very, re- like in the last nanosecond of human history, have women started to even have a voice at all. Exactly. Okay. One more quote from the intro is this, okay. Quote, many men and women have suffered exclusion and discrimination because of their class. No man has been excluded from the historical record because of his sex. Yet all women were, end quote. Hmm. This is significant because it's an argument we still hear all the time. Uh, some people dismiss sexism and say, well, men have had, had it bad too. Not all men are leaders. Not all men are rich. Not all men have authority. Not all men have power. And that's true. And men are certainly not the bad guys in this story. The fact is that in a patriarchal system, many men are excluded from power and all women are excluded from power. So if a man uses the argument on you, now you can quote Gerda Lerner in response. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. That's such an important point to make. And that reminds me too of um, in the introductory episode of the podcast, which I took from the creation of patriarchy, it talks about the stage that's set. um, And that even if a woman does once in a while um, have a role that has some power, that it's still the men who have created the whole play. And so the fact that maybe like Queen Elizabeth during the time of Shakespeare, she had a lot of power, but it was a one-off experience, right? It the women were still excluded from the power structure. All of the women were, like you just pointed out, even though there may have been here or here and there, a woman that like rises as the exception to the rule. Um, Anyway. Okay. The next part that we wanted to highlight after the introduction is where Lerner talks about um, some steps of 
social evolution that happened before the invention of writing. So before we have any written history. Um, In our previous episode, we emphasized that Rianne Eisler claimed that a true matriarchy had never existed. But with that said, also one of Eisler's main projects in that book was highlighting a women's um, quote unquote empowered past. And we didn't have time to talk about it last time, but her book and the work of another archaeologist named Maria Gimbutas sparked a kind of um, goddess movement within feminism in the 1990s. So that's really interesting to look at. If if listeners are interested in, in knowing more, you can just um, look that up online. But um, the writer Sue Monk Kidd is really into that too, like going on pilgrimages to Crete and envisioning a time when women were priestesses. And, and people do talk about matriarchies, quote unquote, in the Neolithic era and in hunter-gatherer cultures. And so Lerna, Lerner chimes in on this topic in the following way. She says, quote, In all hunting-gathering societies, no matter what women's economic and social status is, women are always subordinate to men in some respects. There is not a single society known where women as a group have decision-making power over men or where they define the rules of sexual conduct or control marriage exchanges, end quote. Um, And so she's basically... I feel like agreeing with um, Eisler that there are aspects of Neolithic um, human behavior that show egalitarianism and show definitely more balance and involvement from women, but there isn't a matriarchy ever um, that that has been found that functions in the way that patriarchy does. Um, and I just have to say, like... Um, I know in some families, some women might seem like they're the ones in charge, but women have never been able to say, like, I invoke my status as a woman, right? Mm -hmm. I invoke my status as the woman of the house to overrule you, my husband, in this decision, right? And men, I mean, even if they don't use it, they historically have been able to do that anytime they want. (laughs) And even I was thinking too, to many listeners, that will sound like something that used to happen like hundreds of years ago. But I don't know about you, Sherry, but I have heard couples that are our age where that happens in their marriages, where like a man allows his wife to think that they have equal status. But when it comes down to a big life decision, he'll say, sometimes forcefully, sometimes really gently and nicely, but the message is the same. I'm sorry, but there has to be a tiebreaker. And as the man of the house, I have the final word. And I was in the room when that happened once, like with a couple that I know really well, where he invoked his status as a man and said, like, how dare you? (laughs) How dare you continue with this? Um, It was a conversation that the wife and I were having. And he didn't like that we were talking about it. And he said, you need to stop talking about it. And we kind of looked at him like, um, you can leave if you want. Like, you don't have to listen to us talking if you don't want. And he got so mad. And this is a really good man and mm-hmm. a really lovely couple. And he, like, just puffed up like a dragon and just, you know, basically, how dare you disrespect me? I'm the senior companion. And I told you, you need to stop. And that's now. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if you've had that conversation. I ha- I should say too that this was not my parents or siblings or anybody that people might be guessing. Like who was that 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 happened? <laughs> if they know me personally, but um, I do know. Anyway, of this happening in yes today that is happening. Yeah, 
And so even I, people our age, not even like older generation necessarily. It It's upsetting to me. Yes. Um, anyway, back to learner and the prehistoric past. I guess I pointed, I, I brought that up, I guess, just to show that, um, again, we're studying this partly because these are foundations upon which people are still building their homes upon right. these same lines, right? And so Lerner is saying, yeah, I mean, women may have been more involved, but they've never been able to invoke their status as women to um, trump a man. Okay, so now we're going to take turns telling a story of the chronology of our prehistoric human ancestors and what archaeologists think happened between the time that Homo, Homo sapiens started walking around on two legs all the way to the time that people developed written language in the Fertile Crescent in about 3000 BCE. So Sherry, do you want to start us off? Okay, let's start with the passage straight from the book. Quote, three million years ago to 100,000 years ago, as humans evolved, the first characteristic distinguishing humans from other primates is the prolonged and helpless infancy of the human child. This is the direct result of bipedalism, which led to the narrowing of the female pelvis and birth canal due to upright posture. One result of this was that human babies were born at a greater stage of immaturity than other primates, with relatively smaller heads in order to ease passage through the birth canal. Further, in contrast to the most highly developed apes, human babies are born naked and therefore must experience a greater need for warmth. They cannot grasp their mothers for a steady support. So mothers must use their hands, or later substitutes for hands, to cradle their infants against them. The human brain develops for many years during the child's period of infancy and complete dependency. During this period, the role of females was crucial. Infant survival depended on maternal care, end quote. So basically, because human walk, humans walked on two legs, Babies were born earlier in their gestation, which meant that females needed to breastfeed and care for their babies for a long time. And that, of course, limits our activities. Mm -hmm. plus, plus the women were getting pregnant all the time, which slows <laughs> women down. Yes, so, so true today still. <laughs> yes, today. However... Amy, you and I just read that New York Times article this week mm -hmm. about the remains of that 9,000-year-old uh, big game hunter yes. buried in the Andes, right? Yes. Yeah, so interesting. So the article says, here's the quote, like other hunters of the period, this person was buried with a specialized toolkit associated with stalking large game, including projectile points, scrapers for tanning hides, and a tool that looked like a knife. There was nothing particularly unusual about the body, though the leg bones seemed a little slim for an adult male hunter. But when scientists analyze the tooth enamel using a method borrowed from forensics that reveals whether a person carries the male or female version of a protein called amelogenin, the hunter turned out to be female, end quote. Mm-hmm. And once these scientists knew there was one female, they tested bodies of 26 hunters and 10 of them were female, which is a complete challenge to the assumptions we have always had about hunter-gatherer societies. 
Yes, so interesting. And then later in that article, right, it talks about the skeleton of a Viking warrior too. So like way after that, um, but the same thing happened. They had, uh, of course, assumed that this um, skeleton uh, was male, but then upon testing its DNA, they found out that it was female too. So um, that's a really, really interesting article from uh, January 1st, 2021 by Annalie Newitz in the New York Times. So if listeners are interested in looking that up, um, that was just interesting new information to add to the conversation with Gerda Lerner, right? Yes, exactly. so, okay, continuing where you were, Sherry, um, Lerner says, quote, anthropologist Elise Bolding sees in the Neolithic societies an egalitarian sharing of work in which each sex developed appropriate skills and knowledge essential for group survival. She tells us that food gathering demanded elaborate knowledge of the ecology of plants and trees and roots, their properties as food and as medicine. She describes primitive women as guardian of the domestic fire, as the inventor of clay and woven vessels by which, by means of which the tribe's surpluses could be saved for lean times, end quote. Um, that's really powerful, right? She's... she's um, positing that women had a lot of power because they had power over the food source, right? Right. And and then if we add that to what you just talked about with the New York Times article, that women actually were participating in hunting as well, that really does, like you said, I mean, that kind of throws a wrench in what we assumed and thought about hunter-gatherer societies. But either way, whether women were hunting or not hunting, they were contributing a lot. And so there was a more egalitarian model. Um, and that's, this is the same uh, period of time that Rianne Eisler and Maria Gumbudas um, brought to light that there were paintings and figurines of goddesses everywhere in these, these um, settlements. And so it's obvious that humans were worshiping the female as a giver of life during this time as well. Makes sense to me. okay so far we have the factors that one women are limited by pregnancy and breastfeeding two early cultures worshipped goddesses for being able to create life three women contributed to human survival by their knowledge of plants for food and medicine and they created clay vessels and woven, woven vessels for sorting that food and medicine And as we mentioned before, there's new evidence that women were hunting as well. So despite different biological functions, early human societies seemed possibly pretty egalitarian. But the next factor that Lerner talks about is that men started wars. And it's hard to know exactly what happened and why, because this is all before humans started writing anything down. But Lerner says, quote, Theorists have offered a variety of hypotheses to explain the rise of man, the warrior, and the propensity of men to create militaristic structures. These have ranged from biological explanations, men's higher testosterone levels and greater strength make them more aggressive, to psychological ones. Men compensate for their inability to bear children by sexual dominance over women and by aggression toward other men, end quote. I think it's great that Lerner presents a bunch of ideas, but that she doesn't say it's definitely just testosterone that makes men more aggressive because Mm -hmm. she is a social scientist and historian, and she doesn't want to make assumptions 
She's just trying to present all the theories and all the data, which like we just talked about is really important because sometimes our assumptions are wrong. Yes, that's definitely true. Um, We're also going to come back to men becoming warriors as a result of the agricultural revolution. Um, But first, the next step in history that Lerner talks about is that men start to see women as commodities. So there's lots of disagreement between scholars about how this developed. And again, there's still no written record. But Lerner presents a few different theories. She quotes Claude Levi-Strauss, who is a very famous 20th century anthropologist, as saying the following, quote, The exchange of women, a phenomenon observed in tribal societies in many different areas of the world, was a leading cause of female subordination. It may take many different forms, such as the forceful removal of women from their home tribe, bride stealing, ritual defloration or rape, and negotiated marriages, end quote. Then Lerner says, um, quote, Levi Strauss and Claude Melassou, I could be pronouncing that wrong because it's French, um, but these two anthropologists uh, believe that it is the exchange of women through which private property is eventually created. Melissou argues that women's biological vulnerability in childbirth led tribes to procure more women from other groups, and that this tendency toward the theft of women led to constant intertribal warfare. In the process, a warrior culture emerged. Another consequence of this theft of women is that the conquered women were protected by the men who had conquered them, or by the entire conquering tribe. In the process, women were thought of as possessions, as things. They became reified, while men became the reifiers, because they conquered and protected. Women's reproductive capacity is first recognized as a tribal resource. Then, as ruling elites develop... It is acquired as the property of a particular kin group, end quote. Okay, so this is the beginning of the reification, as she says, of women. And reification means making an idea or a person into a thing. So at this point, women began to be seen as biological resources, as things for men to possess and use and steal and own. So... Okay, so my gut just turned, but let's press Mm -hmm. on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That brings us to the agricultural revolution. Uh, Gernot Lerner says, the material conditions of grain agriculture demand group cohesiveness and continuity over time, thus strengthening household structure. Since the amount of food depends on the availability of labor, production becomes the chief concern. This has two consequences. One, it strengthens the influence of older males. And two, it increases the tribe's incentive for acquiring more women. In the fully developed society based on plow agriculture, women and children are indispensable to the production process, which is cyclical and labor intensive. Children have now become an economic asset. At this stage, tribes seek to acquire the reproductive potential of women rather than women themselves, end quote. So basically, humans used to be hunter-gatherers roaming over the land with men and women doing different work and within a somewhat equal 
power dynamic. But then once they figured out how to grow food, then they stayed in one place and they started harvesting more food than they needed, which made them have a sense of ownership over food and land and other human beings, which they could acquire to work the land and then own more stuff and have more power. Um, go ahead. Nothing. I, I just, you said your stomach turned and it just is hard to, it's hard to read. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to hear again right. and to see those foundations of human behavior. It just seems like the agricultural revolution, a lot of the results of what happened are just so unfortunate in terms of like, um, kind of encouraging the worst part of human nature to mm -hmm to kind of flourish and, and get even worse. And it just is kind of tragic, but go on. Yeah, it is. Um, Gerner Lerner does go on to say, quote, the agricultural economic practice reinforced men's control over surpluses, which may also have been acquired by conquest in intertribal warfare and the asymmetrical allocation of leisure time. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, right? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yep. Okay. Back to her quote, horticultural activities are more productive than substance gathering and produce leisure time, but the allocation of leisure time is uneven. Men benefit more from it than women due to the fact that the food preparation and child rearing activities of women continue unrelieved. Thus men presumably, presumably, could employ their new leisure time to develop craft skills, initiate rituals to enhance their power and influence and manage surpluses, end quote. I do not wish to suggest either determinism or conscious manipulation here. Quite the contrary. Things developed in certain ways, which then had certain consequences, which neither men nor women intended. Gerda goes on to say, I have tried to show how it might have come to pass that women agreed to a sexual division of labor, which would eventually disadvantage them without having been able to foresee the later consequences, end quote. It's just heavy because I've seen it in my own life, how I participated right. in my own subordination. Hmm. Okay, I'll go back to quoting Lerner. Quote, sometime... During the agricultural revolution, relatively egalitarian societies with a sexual division of labor based on biological necessity gave way to more highly structured societies in which both private property and the exchange of women were common. Many societies changed from egalitarian, matrilineal, and matrilocal to patrilineal and patrilocal. Nowhere is there any evidence of a reverse process going from patriliny to matriliny. The more complex societies featured a division of labor no longer based only on biological distinctions, but also on hierarchy and the power of some men over other men and all women, end quote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is mind-blowing. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's so important that Lerner makes a distinction between biological functions. Men are typically physically larger and stronger, and they do typically have more testosterone, which can lead to more aggression. And women 
are typically smaller and not as strong. And women do gestate and lactate, and they do typically take care of the infants. But layered on top of that, because humans discovered agriculture and because some, especially dominant males, influenced social evolution, men started treating women as assets and possessions. And they started creating the role of warriors in society in order to protect their surplus of food and their women from getting stolen by other tribes. And they had more leisure time than women did. So they created roles for themselves of being priests and kings. And they started making up stories about how they were supposed to be in charge to cement their power. And that part is not inevitable. That part was not the case prior to the agricultural revolution. Men were not in charge of women before that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that that was mind-blowing to me, too. That whole section, I think I read it several times to try to understand it. Um, and I think another point that you highlighted that Learner makes is it's really important um, to understand that this happened really, really gradually, like you said, and, and with the women's cooperation. And like you said that, I mean, you mentioned that you can think of ways that you participated in your own subordination. And that totally makes sense to me too. Even um, subordination aside to it, just in other aspects of my marriage or in relationships or just uh, other choices that I've made, I can look back and see things in retrospect and think like, oh, why did I do that? Or like, why did I go along with that? And it was because I didn't quite know where that path was going. We don't know. We never do, right? We, we right. Nobody has a crystal ball. We can't see, you know, if we, you know, start eating a certain thing, what the, <laughs> what the consequences of eating that thing is going to be five years down the road if we're allergic right. to it. We didn't know we were allergic to it. Right. Any, in any case, I appreciate that she points that out, that um, this was probably not a deliberate thing and that women probably went along with it. It probably seemed fine at the time. Um, and these were just humans living their daily lives like we do, going along with stuff as it happened right. and and not realizing what the consequences would be, right? Right. Um, okay, so um, moving along, as a result of the agricultural revolution, we arrive at, quote, the rise of civilization as we know it. So Lerner says that the process by which scattered Neolithic villages, and we should I should mention Neolithic means new stone age. Neo means new, lithic means stone. So there's like a bunch of different stone ages. The old stone, I think Paleo is old and Mesolithic is, is middle. Neolithic means the new stone age. Mm -hmm. um, so as these villages became agricultural communities after the agricultural revolution, and then they became urban centers and finally states, that process has been called the urban revolution or the rise of civilization. And this happened at different times throughout the world. Um, first in the river and coastal valleys of China and Mesopotamia, Egypt, India, and Mesoamerica. And then a little bit later in um, Africa, Northern Europe, and Malaysia. Um, but all of these civilizations, interestingly, are characterized by a few things. First, the emergence of property classes and hierarchies. Two, 
commodity production with a specialization in organized trade over distant regions. Three, consolidation of military elites. Four, kingship. Five, the institutionalization of slavery. And six, transition from kin dominance to patriarchal families. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have written records. <laughs> we have arrived. I know, right? Um, so the invention of writing happened in around 3000 BCE in Sumer, which is between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern day Iraq. So by the time humans started writing, women had already been subjugated for a long, long, long time. So it was just taken for granted as normal. And here is just a brief overview of the records that we find written about women in Mesopotamia around this time. So here are some common features. We find female subordination within the family becomes institutionalized and codified in law. Prostitution becomes established and regulated. Women are excluded from certain occupations and professions. And after the invention of writing and establishment of formal learning, women are excluded from equal access to that education. And then also female deities, which had been worshipped, are subordinated to chief male gods. And origin myths legitimate male ascendancy. So those are the features that we find in the earliest human writings. Um, just to illustrate this, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from the reign of King Urukagina, which was in the year 2371 BCE. Quote, women of former times each married two men, but women of today have been made to give up this crime. And then there's another part that says that women committing that crime of marrying more than one man were stoned with stones inscribed with their evil intent. Um, here's another one. Quote, if a woman speaks disrespectfully to a man, that woman's mouth is crushed with a fired brick. End quote. Um, okay, so those quotes speak for themselves, but Interestingly, at the same time as those things were written, we also find a record that says that a high priestess needed to be added to a list of funeral officials receiving pay. So I guess we just found a payroll <laughs> of like who was officiating in the temple and like, uh, you need to add this lady. She wasn't getting paid to the, fun the list of funeral officials. That was fascinating to me. Okay, and then another record says that the temple of the goddess Ba'u employed 1,000 to 1,200 persons year-round under the administration of a queen named Queen Shagshag. I am not making that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, it says that, so this record says that as administrator of these two temples, the queen exercised legal and economic authority over her domain, and she also functioned as chief priestess in the temple. Um, a little bit later, in around 1800 BCE, 
Women owned and managed property. They could contract in their own name. They could sue in court and serve as witnesses. They took part in business and legal transactions such as adoptions, sales of property, the giving and taking of loans. Women had political standing and rights. They were scribes. They were musicians. They were singers. They carried out important religious functions as priestesses, diviners, and prophetesses. And they were advisors to the king. Um, I think all of those are really powerful and quite surprising. Um, but then Lerner says, but, quote, the wife's power, like that of the male vassal, depended on the will and whim of the king. Mm. Um, and then she makes a further point that the existence of educated noble women does not mean that women overall were educated or empowered. I mean, you can see that even if you look at, like, the Middle Ages in Europe, right? You have... Right a very small handful of noble women who were educated, but the majority were not. So just um, the fact of the existence of educated women, it's almost like the exception proves the rule, right? Um, people sometimes use anomalous examples of exceptional women to show that women aren't oppressed, but, um, but no, that's not the case. The exception proves the rule. Right. That's what I learned in all of those darn statistics classes. <laughs> Ah, interesting. <laughs> we can always come up with stories, but is it statistically significant? Uh, no. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to go forward a little bit in history and talk about some of the most famous documents from Mesopotamia. The three major preserved collections of Mesopotamian law are the Codex Hammurabi, Middle Assyrian laws, and the Hittite laws. We're going to highlight a couple from the Code of Hammurabi and the Middle Assyrian laws, which were written from about 1700 BC and onward for a few centuries. And just a content warning that some of these are violent and very hard to hear. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Code of Hammurabi. Quote, if a mother commits incest with her son, both the mother and the son are put to death. But if a father rapes his daughter, he just gets banished from the city. If a father rapes the bride of his son before the marriage has been consummated, the father is fined. But if he rapes his son's wife after the marriage has been consummated, the father is treated as an adulterer and gets the death penalty, end quote. So... What that shows us is that once the marriage is consummated, the wife has become the son's property and the father mm -hmm. is punished, not because he's harmed a woman, but because he has disrespected a man. Mm -hmm. Okay, next one. Middle Assyrian Law 55 deals in detail with the rape of a virgin. It says, quote, if a married man rapes a virgin who lives in her father's house, whether it was within the city or in the open country or at night in the street or in a garner or at a festival of the city, the father of the virgin shall take the wife of the ravisher of the virgin and give her to be dishonored. He shall not give her back to her husband, but shall take her. The father shall give his daughter who has been ravished as a spouse 
to her ravisher. If the rapist has no wife, he must pay the price of a virgin to the father, marry the girl, and know that he can never divorce her. If the girl's father does not agree to this, he shall accept the money fine and give his daughter to whom he pleases, end quote. Oh, I just want to like wipe that from my mind. <laughs> so let me, so if I understand this right, if a married man rapes a girl, then the wife of the rapist gets raped by the father of the raped girl. And the girl uh, who has been raped is considered ruined and no one will ever marry her. So she's married off to her rapist. So yep. if the father of the raped girl doesn't want to marry her off to the rapist, he still retains his right to give his daughter to whomever he wants. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me calm down a second. It's, no, it's the absolute, I mean, it's, it's shocking. It, and this is the law. This isn't just like they discovered some evil, creepy cult that practiced this stuff. This was like the law of the land. This is what they thought was fair and ethical. And they go on to describe I, just, like where it might happen, right? In the open yes, country, at night, yes, or in the street, or all the right. different places that it might happen. Just right. I, anyway. Right. Okay, so I'm allowed to feel rage. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's horrible. It's horrifying. Okay, here's another one. Awful. Middle Assyrian Law 59 says, quote, A man may scourge his wife, pluck her hair, may bruise and destroy her ears. There is no liability, therefore. Um, these actions could be carried out in private, but any legally inflicted punishments, such as tearing out of the breasts, cutting off of the nose or ears, must be carried out by an official. The implication is that the husband may no longer, as he perhaps did in earlier times, carry out the punishment himself. And one last one, which demonstrates the degree to which men felt they owned women's bodies. Middle Assyrian Law 53. If a woman causes her own miscarriage, quote, and proof has been brought against her, she shall be impaled and shall not be buried. If that woman was concealed when she cast the fruit of her womb, and it was not told to the king, and at that point, the tablet breaks off, end quote. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think Lerner's just saying, yeah, that that's all they see. And, and so I thought that was so interesting too, right? Because at that point, you're like, oh yeah, this was just carved into a tablet. And so it just was a broken tablet. It's so interesting. It's horrifying. Um, Yeah, it's horrifying. It's also really strange because Middle Assyrian law, if a child is unwanted, specifically a female child, then it was left out to the elements to die. That wasn't wasn't a crime. Right. Okay, so Gerda Lerner goes on to say this, quote, What is striking here is, first of all, that self-induced abortion is regarded as a public crime of which the king must be apprised. Impalement and refusal of burial are the severest penalties meted out in the Middle Assyrian legal system, and they are public penalties for high crimes. Why should a woman's self-adduced abortion be deemed a crime of equal severity to high treason or assault upon the king? 
The savage punishment against self-abortion has to do with the importance placed throughout the Middle Assyrian law on the connection between the power of the king and the power of the patriarchal family head over his wives and children. Thus, the right of the father, hitherto practiced and sanctioned by custom, to decide over the lives of his infant children, which in practice meant the decision of whether his infant daughters should live or die, is in the Middle Assyrian law equated with the keeping of social order. For the wife to usurp such a right is now seen as equal in magnitude to treason or an assault upon the king. The control of female sexuality previously left to individual husbands or to family heads had now become a matter of state regulation, end quote. So this is, these are just some examples of some of humanity's earliest written laws. These are the foundations upon which human civilization was built. And I should mention too, if listeners are interested in reading more of these laws, there are a bunch on Wikipedia if you look up Assyrian law. They are so misogynistic and mm-hmm. so violent. Um, it makes me wonder again how humanity, how human history would have evolved if women had been at the table with men making laws and deciding what was fair and how society should run. Yeah. I wonder that too. Like Lerner points out, these laws require, they require women to be raped and murdered. And yet at the same time, the law mentions priestesses officiating in temples. And so, yeah, you you wonder like, what if those priestesses had had a hand in making the laws and maybe weighing in on what happens if a woman is raped or deciding what happens if a woman needs an abortion. So it seems like women had some power in people's spiritual lives, but that didn't seem to translate into women's everyday lives. It didn't seem to protect them very much. Um, But yeah, that's heavy and awful and really instructive and important to know, in my opinion. It is. Um, And that leads us to our last topic today, which is the ancient goddesses. So Gerda Lerner points out that for hundreds or even thousands of years, goddesses were still worshipped and priestesses still officiated and female oracles were prophesying even as the women were losing their rights and their status um, as males were just ascending and subjugating the women in all of the other areas. Um, And then if we think of Rianne Eisler's description of matrifocal cultures in various parts of the world, um, this overlaps with this part of um, the creation of patriarchy. Lerner, Lerner says, quote, the supremacy of the goddess is expressed in the earliest myths of origin, which celebrate the life giving creativity of the female. In Egyptian mythology, the primeval ocean, the goddess Nun, gives birth to the sun god Atum, who then creates the rest of the universe. The Sumerian goddess Namu creates the male sky god Un and the female earth goddess Ki. In Babylonian myth, the goddess Tiamat, the primeval sea, and her consort give birth to gods and goddesses. 
In Greek mythology, the earth goddess Gaia, in a virgin birth, creates the sky Uranus. The creation of humans is also attributed to her. In the Assyrian version of an older Sumerian myth, the wise mommy, the mother womb, the one who creates mankind, fashions humans out of clay, but it is the male god Ea who opened the navel. End quote. So all of these stories reflect the obvious truth that women have a special role in the creation of life, um, but also that life is created by men and women together. So let's look at two ancient goddesses, Ishtar, who is also called Inanna, and Asherah. And I'll take Ishtar, and then Sherry, you have Asherah. Sounds good. Um, so Ishtar Inanna was the ancient Mesopotamian goddess associated with love, beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. She kind of covers the bases. Mm-hmm. Um she was originally called Inanna and worshipped in Sumer from 4,000 to 3,000, roughly, uh, BCE. And she was later worshipped by the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians under the name Ishtar. She was known as the Queen of Heaven, and she is the first known deity for which we have written evidence. The first known deity of either gender. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I had not known that. Yeah. And she was great. a woman. Yeah. Um, So the first written record of humans worshiping a god was Ishtar. She is alluded to in the Hebrew Bible, and she greatly influenced the Phoenician goddess Ostereth, who later influenced the development of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. Her cult continued to flourish until its gradual decline between the first and sixth centuries of the common era in the wake of Christianity, so it lasted a really long time, just thousands of years of, of evolving and changing with different cultures. Um, and actually, it survived, the worship of Ishtar or Inanna survived in parts of Upper Mesopotamia among Assyrian communities as late as the 18th century. Um, Lerner says about Inanna, Ishtar, quote, Worshippers regarded the goddess as all-powerful. In the symbol of the goddess's vulva, fashioned of precious stones and offered up in her praise, they celebrated the sacredness of female sexuality and its mysterious life-giving force, which included the power to heal. And in the very prayers appealing to the goddess's mercy, they praised her as mistress of the battlefield, more powerful than kings, more powerful than other male gods. Men and women offering such prayers when in distress must have thought of women just as they thought of men, as capable of metaphysical power and as potential mediators between the gods and human beings. One cannot help but wonder at the contradiction between the power of the goddesses and the increasing societal constraints upon the lives of most women in ancient Mesopotamia, end quote. Mm. Yeah, absolute contradiction. <laughs> like two things are true at the same time. That's something I say in my practice all the time. Two things are true mm. at the same time. And here we see it so blatant. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I like that Lerna talks about what it must have felt like for men and women to pray to a female God who is more powerful than a king. Mm-hmm. I mentioned in my introduction that I had taken a class that introduced me to the divine feminine as 
as a part of that class, we studied the goddess Asherah. So she is really important to me personally. Mm. Asherah was the mother goddess in ancient Semitic religion. She was mentioned in Hebrew, Akkadian, and Hittite texts for many hundreds of years around 2000 to 1000 BCE. She was worshipped as the mother of heaven and the creatrix of the gods. That's a new word to me, just so you know, creatrix of the gods. Yeah. I love that. I love it. <laughs> yeah. The female creator. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> she was also known as the wife of the king of heaven, who was called El and later Yahweh in the Bible. There are many ancient records that read Yahweh and his Asherah. So if you're looking for a Judeo-Christian divine feminine or a Mormon heavenly mother, here she is, right? Here she is. (laughs) Yep. Her symbol was the tree. And in these ancient texts, you hear about Asherah poles. In the Bible, you hear about Asherah poles and worshiping in groves. This refers to the worship of the mother goddess, which often happened in forests. There are also many, many goddess figurines representing Asherah that have been unearthed in Israel and the surrounding areas. So despite her association with Yahweh in sources other than the Bible, starting in about 586 BCE, Yahweh turned into a jealous god. And the writers of the Bible vilified the goddess and wiped her from memory. In Deuteronomy 12, Yahweh commands the destruction of her shrines. Remember when Moses and Joshua arrive in Canaan and they kill everyone and destroy their idols, right? Mm -hmm. The Canaanites worshipped Asherah. So Mm. those records are Hebrew people claiming that their male father God is commanding them to destroy all evidence of a mother God. Remember all the references to God telling the people of Israel to burn down the groves? Those groves were the forests where Asherah was worshipped. This was a culture that used to worship a mother and was now burning trees down and destroying the divine feminine. The words that appear in the Bible regarding Asherah are cut, hewn, burned, plucked. They're so violent and it just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. I, I should point out that this wasn't just the Hebrews doing this to Asherah. This happened all around the Near East in the Egyptian religion, the in the Minoan religion, and in the Myc- Mycenaean religion, which then became the Greek religion. Right. Yeah. Um, this happened everywhere. The The subjugation of the female goddesses by male gods, right? Um, Lerner says, quote, the observable pattern is first the demotion of the mother goddess figure and the ascendance and later dominance of her male consort or son. Then his merging with a storm god into a male creator god, who heads the pantheon of gods and goddesses. Wherever such changes occur, the power of creation and of fertility is transferred from the goddess to the god. End quote. Mm. 
So, so some goddesses were turned into men. Some, like the Egyptian goddess Isis, started out as the supreme being, but then became the wife or the consort, and then morphed into the Magna Mater or the Great Mother, who was known in Western Asia and in Greek and Roman mythology. And then some had their various powers and roles splintered into many less powerful goddesses, like you get Aphrodite and Artemis and Hera. So they just kind of split into a lot of different, less powerful female figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, we, we talked about this exact process in The Chalice and the Blade too, where the dominator cultures came in and their male gods gradually just erased or subsumed um, or subjugated the female goddesses of the cultures that they conquered. And to me, this, I mean, it just reminds me of when Lerner says that men are the symbol makers, right? Like we said at the very beginning, um, they not only ruled women, they then created the stories and the meaning and the interpretation that affected how human beings see themselves and and how they see their place in the world. So those stories, I think, at least speaking from personal experience, I think the stories that I learned as a little child really impacted my own psyche and the way I saw myself and my place in the world. And I personally think stories are really, really powerful. Absolutely. really significant um, what happened. Um, That brings us to the end, Sherry, the end of part one of the creation of patriarchy. So really quick, as we wrap up, what would you say is um, a takeaway from what we read and discussed today? Um, First, I want to pause. Oh, I get emotional when I just think about it. I just want to hold sacred space for these women. They were disempowered and dehumanized and raped and abused and forgotten. And turns out it's all been recorded. Uh, Here I am in my 40s, um, now learning about how this oppression was not accidental. It was systemic and pervasive across so many cultures. I just want to say thank you to all of these nameless women. I want to give them a moment of gratitude. Um, today I'm able to live the life that I want and the life that I choose. And it's all on their backs, I guess. So Amy, I'm, I'm so grateful to participate in this podcast and be a small part of the change. I'm grateful for Gerda Lerner and her work and compiling all of this information. Things are better for me and my daughters, um, but it's still evident that so much change still needs to be made. Mm. That's beautiful, Sherry. Thank you so much. And I'm so grateful for you participating um, today. You, I mean, just brought so many really smart, brilliant insights and, and you, your heart and your sincerity and your, your um, personal experience. I'm so grateful um, that you're here. And thank you for that beautiful way to end this episode. Um. I guess I'll share a takeaway too. Um, and that is a quote from the from part one of the creation of patriarchy, where Lerner says, quote, patriarchy as a system is historical. It has a beginning in history. If that is so, it can be ended by historical process, end quote. And that's maybe one of Lerner's more famous quotes. And already just knowing this information helps me see 
those foundations that our society is built on today. And seeing the structure for what it really is reminds us that humans made it up at some point, right? And, and so human beings can dismantle it and can build something better in its place. And like you just pointed out, already have done so much to dismantle old, horrible, horrible practices and build something better. That process has been going on for a long time. And I'm, I, like you, am just humbled and grateful for all of the work that has been done, um, the, the brave people who came before us. Um, and I think, and again, like we said before, that's why Gerda Lerner spent her life establishing women's history programs in universities, um, so that women could know we could know our own history, and create a world that's more just and more fair and and happier for all human beings. And um, that's why I started this history project because I wanted to learn more and because I wanted to participate in this process. So. Again, Sherry, thank you so much for reading and for discussing with me today. Oh, absolutely, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm excited to do this again for part two. Me too. So excited. So um, that brings us to the end. Uh, Next time, we will tackle the second half of the creation of patriarchy. Um, We will start out kind of where we left off today and we'll begin with the Hebrew Bible. And after that, we'll move on to the ancient Greeks. So listeners, if you haven't already had a chance to read this book, check it out if you can. Um, And then whether or not you are able to read it, please do join us for the discussion of part two next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.